right, turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing this series on prayer. Now in our third week, third of five. And the first three weeks we've been in Matthew 6, looking at this passage that's surrounding the Lord's Prayer, verses 5 through 13. I think next week we're going to consider a different passage, but it has been so good for us to be in this passage for some extended time. And I want to read beginning at verse 5 through verse 13. This is Jesus talking. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corner, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. Here in this passage, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And in doing so, he's capturing the heart of communion with God. Indeed, as I've said before, prayer is the pathway to a more personal relationship with our Heavenly Father. Martin Luther said, he said, I nurse at the Lord's prayer like a child. And as an old man, I eat and I drink from it and never get my fill. This is certainly a well-known prayer memorized and recited by untold numbers of people from all walks of life, from one generation to the next. It is a cherished prayer that has sustained and strengthened the prayers of many. It is a model prayer. Pray like this. A pattern of prayer to inform and direct our prayers. And for our purposes, I've divided it into two parts. Uh, I've divided it into verses 9 and 10, what I'm calling the primacy of praise. And then verses 11 through 13, or practical petitions. The primacy of praise and practical petitions. We took part one last Sunday and said that prayer is the adoration of God to the advancement of His kingdom in our lives and around the world. These first two verses, 9 and 10, are vertical in nature. They deal with God's name, God's kingdom, 
and God's will. They are about God and express desire for God. They are distinctly, noticeably God-centered. The second part of this prayer is about bringing our petitions before God. And these verses are more horizontally focused, if you will. They're marked by the words, us and our. Verse 11, give us our daily bread. Verse 12, forgive us our debts. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And so they talk about faith. They talk about forgiveness. And ultimately, they talk about freedom. The point they make is that because God is our Heavenly Father, because God is our Heavenly Father, we can depend upon Him for provision, for pardon, and for protection each day. That's where we're going this morning. Just three verses, but they are chock full. We have a lot to cover, and we're getting a late start. So buckle in, here we go. It says, give us this day our daily bread. And the words give and daily are important here. The words give and daily are important. They affirm our need for God each day. We need God's grace each day. The problem, however, is that sin has convinced us we don't. Uh, While we may admit a general need for grace and even acknowledge the God of grace, when it comes to daily dependence upon grace, there seems to be an obvious disconnect. By and large, we as people think we can get along pretty good by ourselves, especially for us. For us, our affluent First world experience constantly feeds this delusion in that we tend to approach God with a sense of entitlement rather than with poverty of spirit. We fail to see how we how we just we fail to see just how desperately needy we are. I've heard it said that American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. I think there's truth to that. In America, we're taught to lace up our boots, put our shoulder to the grindstone, throw in a little elbow grease, and don't give up. And you'll make it. The more resources we have here in America, the less we see our need and the, and the less we depend on God. It's difficult, isn't it, to be rich in material things and poor in spirit. I mean, isn't that the, the point that Jesus is making, essentially, uh, after he meets with the rich young ruler? When he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, he's not just talking about the money. He's not just talking about the, uh, the prestige that comes along with it. He's not just talking about the, the many creature comforts. No, I think Jesus is digging much deeper. I think he's talking about this underlying sense of autonomy and control 
and self-reliance that so often accompanies material wealth, that so often feeds this illusion that you can make it on your own. That is, until you can't. And so when when 9-11 happened, everyone prayed. Even non-praying people prayed. Our world had been shaken to the core and we became painfully aware of how little control we really have and how easily it can all be taken from us. Painfully aware of our precariousness. Remember, that's a word directly related to prayer. Painfully aware of our precariousness, our need for God took center stage, and that's what Jesus is getting at here in verse 11. He calls us to pray in a way that acknowledges daily dependence upon the Lord. And this concept of daily bread should remind us that Each and every day is a gift from God not to be taken for granted. Uh, Let me ask you, what do you have that you have not ultimately received from your Heavenly Father? But you say, but Wayne, I work hard, I've put in the time. I have talents and abilities that I've honed over time. I've earned my stripes, maybe. But who gave you those things, those talents and abilities? And why you and not someone else? And who put you in positions to meet certain people? Who opened just the right doors at just the right time? More than that, who keeps your heart beating? Who keeps your blood flowing? Who keeps your lungs breathing? Who? Who sustains your life? Who gives you life? God, give us this day, this day, this day, it says, calling us to live in the now, in the present, in what God has provided for us today. And so you think about the, the, uh, the people of Israel, right, when God delivered them from Egypt And they're in the wilderness, and he supplied them with daily bread. Manna from heaven was provided each day with instruction to take only what you needed for that day. And if you took more, what happened? It spoiled. Why? What's God saying there? He was teaching the children of Israel to depend on him every day. It's like my son and pizza. I mean, Elias loves pizza. He cannot get enough pizza. He asks for pizza almost every day. And when we tell him, when, like when we tell him in the morning that we have, we're having pizza for dinner, he just bursts with excitement. And he reminds us of it all day. 
and he talks about it with his sisters all day. And then when the pizza comes that night, I kid you not, he'll eat not just one slice or two, but three or four. And we, if we just let him keep going, he'd keep eating. I mean, this, I'm not kidding you. This four-year-old boy, if we let him, would eat as much pizza as me. It's almost like he has no concept of another pizza for another day. As if this is the last pizza he's going to see, and so he better get his fill. And we laugh, but we're like that. We're like that. We have a hard time being content one day at a time. In fact, we think the more manna we have, the more content we'll be. If we're honest, we don't want daily bread. Deep down, we want weekly bread. We want yearly bread. We want retirement bread. And at the end of the day, listen, here's the point. At the end of the day, we want control. And yet, instinctively, we know we can't control tomorrow. So what do we do? <laughs> Catch this. We, control, we try to control today as a way of controlling tomorrow. It's this illusion, it affects us all, even in the church, frankly. This is why people hesitate to bring tithes and offerings to the church. I think this is the number one reason. It's been the number one reason for, for, for me, for my wife. This was the issue that I had to come to grips with before the Lord. So I think this is the issue, why giving is always an issue, why, why giving is always an issue in the church, in almost every church, because we're afraid that if we give today, we won't have any tomorrow. So we're afraid to give back to God what he's given to us because in our heart of hearts, listen, in our heart of hearts, we're not sure he'll come through. So we, we underestimate his ability and we overestimate our own. At the root, then, dependence is a matter of trust and submission to God. That's what this prayer does for us. It reminds us who's in control. It's a call to faith. It's a call to faith. It calls you to trust your Father, to provide your every need each and every day. And so we trust God to provide and we trust him to pardon. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Well, this implies something. I think to seek forgiveness from God implies we first recognize our wrongdoing and the effect that it has on our relationship with him and others.
By the way, I'm reading from the ESV where it has the word forgive us our debts. Some other translations may say forgive our trespasses. That's, that certainly applies too. The, the word is more akin to the word debt. I think the ESV got it right here. Sin is indebtedness. That's what sin does. God deserves our full obedience. God deserves our full obedience. So disobedience equals indebtedness. It's not just that we've done wrong before God. It's that we're actually in debt to God. Meaning that God, meaning that God has the legal right to exact payment for sin. But the debt we owe him is insurmountable, one we can never repay. We may try, but can never, never repay. And so the question is, how then can we be forgiven? How can God forgive our wrongs without being unjust or wrong himself? And God's answer is, is with the gospel. The gospel says that Jesus Christ paid our debt in full by dying in our place. It says that Jesus, the sinless one, bore our sins and actually became sin. It says in Colossians 2 that God actually took the record of debt that stood against us and nailed it to the cross. It says that Jesus' death was substitutionary. Him for us, making full atonement for our sins. It says that Jesus Christ, having died, rose from the dead and lives today to grant new and eternal life with God. He lives today to forgive sin. His blood shed on the cross is all sufficient to cleanse, to wash away every sin. And so the gospel assures us of full, full forgiveness from sin, full reconciliation with God for any person, any person who repents and comes to Christ. Any person who receives Jesus as Savior, any person who calls upon Christ as Lord will be saved from their sin's penalty by the grace of God. This is where forgiveness begins. It begins by entrusting yourself to Jesus Christ and to his redemptive work on your behalf. Try to illustrate. Do you know, have you ever experienced what it's like to be debt free? I mean, think about it in financial terms. If you've ever paid off a credit card or a car loan or a mortgage, then you know <laughs> the tremendous relief. This is no small thing, right? And there's just this tremendous relief that comes upon you when you receive that final statement that reads paid in full. 
And now imagine with me receiving that statement without ever making a single payment. And to the contrary, actually, rather than lowering your balance, instead you're falling more and more in debt when as an act of complete grace, instead of exacting payment from you, your creditor releases you. Or better yet, he pays the debt for you. Can you imagine, I mean, if we get, can you just imagine the relief? If we get that excited, that relieved, when we're chipping away at this credit card, chipping away month by month by month, maybe year by year by year, and finally, whoo, I'm free. (laughs) Imagine if you never made a payment, and you still got that statement and said, I paid it for you, paid in full. Now, that's exactly what, what Jesus has done for you, but infinitely more, right? He has paid your spiritual debt in full himself, a debt you could never in a million years repay. He's reconciled to God, and he wants nothing to stand in the way of your relationship with your heavenly Father. He wants you to be free from sin, Woo! to be unencumbered, right? He wants you to be forgiven your sins once and for all, justified before God, and to seek forgiveness whenever you sin so that nothing would hinder your communion with God every day. Every day. That feeling every day. Do you know this forgiveness? Do you know it? Have you experienced this eternal relief that the grace of God brings? You can, you can, you can. Jesus says, pray for it. Father, forgive me my debts. Forgive me my debts. And he says, even as I have forgiven my debtors. So, forgiveness from God should motivate a forgiving spirit toward others. And if it doesn't, then something's terribly wrong. If God's forgiveness of your sins doesn't compel you to forgive others their sins against you, then you've misunderstood the matter entirely. Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? And let's recap. All right, there's a king who's settling accounts. And he brings before him a servant who owes him basically gobs of money. 
that the servant can never repay. Never. And so the king orders him, the servant, and his entire family to be sold so that he could at least recoup some of what was owed. Well, the man, being desperate, he just says, give me more time. Give me more time. I'll repay every last penny. I mean, it was uh, an impossible promise. Not in a hundred lifetimes could he repay this debt, but just like us, just like we sometimes do in, in our desperation, he's just scrambling. But to his great relief, the king not only granted him mercy, but actually canceled his entire debt and then released him to be released him to enjoy the kingdom guilt-free. Now, what would you expect from that man? Wouldn't you just expect unbelievable gratitude? Unbelievable, just this having been forgiven so much, wouldn't you just expect an unbelievably forgiving spirit? Instead, the man goes and he finds a second man who owes him just a couple bucks. And he says, give me what you owe me. And the man says, I'm sorry, I don't have it. I need more time. And the first man, forgiven so much, he says, no, you don't get any more time to prison with you. So he exacts the law and has the man thrown into prison. Now, the king's furious, right? Word gets back to the king about what happened. So he brings the servant back to him and he says, do you mean to tell me? Let me make sure I've got this straight. Do you mean to tell me that you refuse to give for to forgive this man his debt of a couple dollars when I forgave you hundreds of thousands? What in the world are you thinking? Do you not understand what I've done for you? And with that, oh, this is very, very alarming. He throws the man into prison and reenacts or reinstalls the entire debt he owes. And then Jesus makes his point. I can picture him looking the disciples in the eye when he says, so it will be for every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Wait, 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 what? Come again, Jesus? I'm sorry, it sounded like you said that God would withhold forgiveness of my sins if I withhold forgiveness from others. Sounded like you said that. I'm sure that's not what you said. And yet Jesus essentially says, that's exactly what I said. In fact, he says it right here in this passage. Right? Verse 14, verse 15. Verse 15, if you do not forgive 
others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Now I know, I know, I know it's at this point where we want to explain this away. We do. We want to explain it away. Right? I mean, we love the concept of unconditional grace from God. But we want to place all kinds of conditions on it when it involves us and others. But when we fail to forgive others, we show that we value a merit-based, tit-for-tat system rather than the grace of God. When we fail to forgive others, we show that we don't really understand grace or even prize it all that much. It's just not that big a deal. It's not that important to us. When we fail to forgive others, we display a sense, oh, it's subtle, but it's there. We display a sense of pride and superiority as if that person now owes us something. Owes us an apology. Owes us uh, to make it right. And because they owe us, we have the right to expect an exact repayment. And yet Jesus is saying, we cannot explain it away that, if, that we have no right to seek forgiveness from God if we're unwilling to forgive others. I mean, how can we sing of God's grace? How can we sing of God's forgiveness and not forgive? How can I glory in God's forgiveness of my sin? My sin, right? You know how it goes. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. How can it be well with your soul? How can you glory? glory in God's forgiveness of your sin and not forgive others theirs. You see, the litmus test of whether or not you truly appreciate God's grace is how gracious you are with others. uncomfortable and so I'm thinking about this this week and, and now I'm asking you I'm asking you the question that God was asking me is there someone in my life is there someone in your life with whom you are keeping a record of debt There's another one. Oh, they gave me that look. There's another one. There's another one. God's saying, Wayne, is there someone in your life? And now <laughs> I'm saying, church, is there someone in your life with whom you are keeping a record of debt? Forgive. Forgive. 
receive God's grace and be gracious in response. And so as we walk with God, we become even more reliant upon grace, not less. We have one more point here. We are ever dependent upon God's provision, ever dependent upon God's pardon, and verse 13, ever dependent upon God's protection. It says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's not that God tempts us. He doesn't. To pray this way, to pray, lead us not into temptation, is simply another way of saying, Father, will you steer me away from places or from things or from people that tempt me to sin? Will you steer me away from those things? Really what it is is voicing our desire to follow our Heavenly Father in holiness and purity. It's, it's expressing our desire to seek His help and guidance in our struggle with sin while also being aware and alert of potential uh, pitfalls. You know, the Bible says that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you. So it would make sense for us to pray for God's protection. Warn me, Father. Warn me of dangers ahead. Warn me of troubles that lurk. Father, warn me when I'm flipping through TV channels into territory I should avoid. Father, warn me when I'm online and I see banners or ads that direct me to sites I ought not go. Father, warn me when my speech grows dangerously close to gossip. Warn me, Father, when I'm tempted to fudge the expense report. Warn me when I'm hanging with the wrong crowd at school. Warn me when I'm bored or tired, right? And I'm prone to let down my guard. Warn me when I think I'm stronger than I really am. We need God's goodness. We need his guidance. We need the grace of guidance because without it, we're just a step away from disaster. Not only guidance, we need deliverance too. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. The evil one. No one can deny the presence of evil in the world. Ultimately, this traces back to the evil one or the devil. Listen, the devil is no real, no threat. The devil is no threat to the Lord. No threat at all to the Lord. But he's a very real threat to us. So as long as we're walking in step with God, as long as we're, we're with God, we're following His lead. But if we're not, danger, danger. The devil, we're told, he schemes against us. He sets snares to trap us. The devil is a murderer, and he's been so from the beginning. The devil is the deceiver of the whole world and accuses the children of God night and day. 
The devil is our adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Please hear this. The devil wants to destroy you and everything about you and everything you stand for. He wants to destroy your faith, your friendships, your family, your entire future. Listen, we aren't talking about some low-level minion who just occasionally tempts you to do naughty things. No, 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 no. We are talking about a supernatural being, the prince of this present darkness, whose sole objective is to take you out. Like a lion on the prowl. I've said this before. Picture a lion walking through those doors and your reaction to it. Like a lion on the prowl, the devil doesn't just want to derail you, he wants to devour you. Sally and I were watching a crime drama recently, and in crime dramas, other suspense-type movies or shows, you know, there's usually a killer on the loose, and inevitably, inevitably, in every episode, someone just foolishly wanders into trouble. Sure enough, this woman's coming home after, after work at dark, and she's on a crowded, well-lighted street, and then she turns down a less crowded street, not as much light, and then she turns down even a more isolated area, and then a final turn, and she's in this dark alley, all alone at night and we're all thinking the same thing right what are you thinking lady what are you doing don't you know there's a killer lurking nearby but she doesn't seem to care and the next scene she's a goner it's so foolish so avoidable. Yeah, we do that all the time when it comes to sin and Satan. We act like we can do anything and go anywhere without any repercussions. We can turn down this road and we can meander down that road and then we can turn down this road and before you know it, we're in that dark alley. And the devil is lurking and licking his chops. The Bible says, if you think you're standing firm, if you think you're standing firm, if you're sitting here and you're saying, Wayne, that's not me. That's not me. I'm good. If you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. It says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then it says, and this is such great news, it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so through Christ, God delivers us from our debts, verse 12 and from the devil himself. Verse 13. And if the Son sets you free, 
you will be free indeed. So, as we near this end of the Lord's Prayer, not only does Jesus how to, not only does Jesus teach us how to pray, He is also the reason we pray, and in fact, the perfect answer to our prayers. This is this is so cool. It was just like one of those light bulb moments when God revealed this to me. In the truest sense, Jesus is the bread of verse 11. The bread of life, come from heaven, who saves and sustains the soul each day. He is the forgiveness of verse 12, the Redeemer, the Redeemer who has paid our debt in full. He is the deliverance of verse 13, the Lord who leads us in the ways of God the Savior who was delivered into evil, into the hands of the evil one in order to free us forevermore. By giving us the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is teaching us to declare the glory of God. That's last week, verse 9 to desire the kingdom of God. That's last week, verse 10. And then this week, to depend upon God each day for provision, for pardon, and for protection through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, thank you for the time and your word. Thank you for... for being here with us and I, and I just am especially appreciative of my brothers and sisters here who have been so attentive and patient and uh, and I just sense Lord that you've spoken to us and that maybe you have even put your finger on some areas of our lives that are so exciting for us and maybe other areas that are somewhat uncomfortable so we just thank you for that too. We thank you for both. We thank you for this great reassurance and we thank you for this ongoing sanctification. Thank you for teaching us how to pray. Help us to be praying people. Help us to be a praying church. For your glory, for our good. Amen.